Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like ducks, priests and toffee. Or ice, lice, I'd love to do lice, and spice. It's the history of trade and cuisine and preservation and excitement. Or mice, splice and thrice. Thrice is fantastic. It's all about the number three. It's triplets, tricycles, trios, triangles. It's also about the Bible, Sam. It's about Peter's denial of Christ three times. And those of you who are conversant with your Bible, Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 22, verses 59 to 62, um, Jesus speaks to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. However, this is an enormous aside as we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of fear is in fact all about childhood, death and disasters, war and warfare via shrapnel, civilian and bombardment and nuclear threat. It's about the Great Wall of China, bodies, highwaymen and pirates, terrorism, and of course, fear of heights and the lure of the void. Get away from the edge, young man. Or that the history of mountains is in fact all about freedom, prejudice, vendetta, elephants, and the absence of history. I don't think we've done mountains as a single episode yet we've written about it we've chatted about it off and on but there's an awful lot to do on mountains which are fascinating and on my christmas list for i have already started compiling such a thing there is robert mcfarlane's mountains of the mind which i've been meaning to read for so long He's very good, isn't he? He's very, He's good. very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, what an amazing introduction, James. <laughs> I want to. Do, I want to do the history of thrice. The uh, thrice. we have done. We we've done the history of seven. Yes. We did the history of the number seven um, for our book on the Romans, and that was one of the most enjoyable chapters I wrote. Um, and the history of numbers more generally is absolutely fascinating. I and mean, I'm not talking about maths. I'm talking about the history of individual numbers. It sounds insane, um, but you just need to go and read the chapter on the number seven in our in our Romans book. It's brilliant. Anyway, um, the man who's just been not gibbering, but speaking <laughs> fluent, fascinating history, mice, splice and thrice. Good God. <laughs> let, let, me, let me just say that he is the David Bowie of history, and that will make a little bit more sense uh, in the coming minutes. Uh, it is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's the wonderful James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, because, again, we haven't dared to get into the cramped spaces of our recording studio, yet he is across town. Wait for it. It is the historical judge dispensing sentences of ridicule on the misuse of the past. Yes, it's the famous historical adventurer and my very dear friend, who I don't get to see so much nowadays, it's the wonderful Dr Sam Willis. Gosh, that was a mouthful of mixed metaphors there, <laughs> gabbling on as ever. It was good. You're, um, since we've come back from, from lockdown, your introductions have been, have been excellent, James. Ladies and gentlemen, this week we're going to be doing the fascinating history of humiliation. Um, and uh, what a topic, James. This is definitely one of one one of yours. We've, we're on a bit of run of Daybell topics. We are. We are. And I think this is an extraordinary, um, this is an extraordinary subject. And the reason we're doing it is because the lovely folks at Oxford University Press sent us uh, a new book called The Politics of Humiliation, A Modern mm. History by a brilliant 
German historian called Uta Frevert. I hope I've uh, pronounced her name properly. A German historian. She's a specialist in modern and contemporary German history, social and gender history. She's also, would you believe, the managing director of the brilliant Max Planck Institute for Human Development, which is a wonderful sort of social science institute in in Germany. And she's director of the Institute's uh, History of Emotions, uh, based in Berlin. Uh, she is a, a brilliant historian who has brought her tremendous intellectual powers, if I can say that, to the subject of humiliation. And it is an extraordinary book. Uh, it's one of the books that I've most enjoyed uh, recently, and it is so wide-ranging in the way in which it approaches the subject of humiliation. So you have the concentration on individuals and shaming practices for individuals, but then also how governments humiliate each other. So it's about the way in which diplomacy works. And one of the things that's at the heart of the book, I think, is that on the one hand, if you think about the 20th century, the history of the 20th century and the 19th century, um, you've got the condemnation of humiliation of individuals on the one hand, but yet at the same time, you've got a bewildering amount of commonplace humiliating practices within society. So if you think about the way in which families, schools, the welfare state work, it's all about treating fellow citizens respectfully with dignity as equals. And yet on the other hand, you've got these sort of practices of humiliation all the time. Um, and I think that's something that she seeks to explain. So she she charts the sort of shift over 250 years or so about how humiliation as a practice of coercion and control um, changed over time. So if you think about the medieval and early modern world, so up until about the, the 18th century, um, public shame was used to ridicule people um, in various ways, partly through legal systems, but also through certain sort of communal practices like the sort of rough music and sherivari, just shaming people for particular forms of behaviour. Um, and then by the sort of 19th century, I think across Europe, you've got the development of ideas about human dignity. So how people should behave, how people should be treated. And so what you see is a reduction of these public shaming rituals as legal instruments in most European countries. But yet you still have them existing in particular contexts. So, for example, in schools, you know, children wearing the dunces hat, for example, in the military and in students' fraternities, you know, the hazing rituals uh, that you get in the in the armed forces. And also think about something like reality TV programmes or social media and the way that 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 operates. But this has an enormous sort of reach and range. Um, and her, her interests are extraordinarily broad. I mean, this is like a taxonomy of how you might do this. It, it stems from national justice systems to international politics, the way in which you socialise young people in schools, uh, the media, the military. And it's absolutely, absolutely wide ranging. Um, one of the central things that she's arguing is that humiliation is always about power. So the people who are humiliated, in order for somebody to be humiliated, you need a kind of public audience that witnesses the powerful humiliation of particular people. Without that, 
people can't be humiliated. So if you sit in your in your man cave there, Sam, you know, and and nobody is there to sort of view anything, the likelihood of your shame when you're by yourself is you know is negligible. Whereas if you had a group of people uh, watching you. Um, from the outside and staring in and you, you know, looking at you, rubbing your beard like that. You may, you know, you may feel that you are, you know, that you are, you are shamed. Um, she starts at the book with a couple of just s extraordinary examples that really bring out some of the main themes that she's talking about. And I just want to talk you through a couple of these. They're both modern examples from the, the, the last decade or so. One is a merchant, a 26-year-old vegetable merchant um, uh, called Mohamed Bouazizi, um, who has lived in Tunisia in December 2010. So it's just at the start of the, the Arab Spring. And this is actually one of the acts that, that sparked it. This man covers himself in gasoline and sets his body on fire, sets himself alight in front of the mayor's mansion because what he is rejecting to, what he is demonstrating in this sort of horrific way is the years of police harassment within Tunisia. And a female officer has confiscated all of his products, all of his wares, slaps him round the face so he feels ultimately utterly, utterly humiliated. And for him, he does the only thing that he's able to do, which is to commit suicide by setting himself alight. The other example is really interesting because it comes from the United States in November 2012. And I think one of the things that the book argues is that we see a decline in public humiliation by the legal service. But yet here, you have a local judge in Cleveland, Ohio, who takes an African-American woman who has committed a traffic violation. So she's basically gone up onto a pavement or a sidewalk to avoid a school bus. He, when, he, when he sentences her, she's given a fine, her driving licence is taken away, but she is also ordered to stand by the side of a public highway holding a sign that says... Only an idiot would drive on a sidewalk to avoid a school bus. So the way in which within local legal jurisdictions within the United States, still to this present day, you are finding these sort of, you know, much earlier forms of public ritual and humiliation of individuals. So there we are. There's a sort of starter for 10. Yeah, but it's nice. an extraordinary book. It, it raises all sorts of questions, isn't it? I... Um... I like this question about whether you have to be humiliated in public for it to be humiliation, and I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you can be perfectly humiliated on your own in your own terms if you <laughs> yes. have been made to realise that you've done something wrong. Um, I, I think uh, I, I'm not entirely sure it's, in, it's just to do with public. Certainly it was to do with the public, but also the relationship between humiliation and shame, I think, is, is, is surprisingly complex um, about whether... whether um, well, it's to do with violating some kind of social or moral accepted behaviour, isn't it? Yes. And you've you've, yeah. you've done something you've done something wrong, and you are made to realise that you have done something wrong, or that others do. But anyway, I think there's there's more to it there. But the general point that we can make here 
is that we're struggling with this idea of of shame and humiliation and the way that people felt it in the past the way people experienced it would have been different to the way we understand it and experience it now so it's one of these subjects that I mean, the moment you we, we decided to do it, a bit like the one we did on fear last week, and you suddenly, as a historian, you realise that all of your preconceptions are likely to be massively wrong if you're applying them to 15th century France or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so some really interesting, interesting points there. Um, the the use of of it as a tool, uh, I I'm really interested in. Um, there are lots of I think quite well-known examples. When I was thinking about this, I, I we we um we wrote about chairs, didn't we, for the, our Tudor book, yeah, and and how um they were used as a kind of a punishment device. People being able made to sit on them for long periods of time, sit on them in public. Um, and there are other examples like that. Have you come across the shame flute? This is something I've recently come across. Which oh, is, I haven't which come is... across the shame flute. That sounds excellent. I need one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I need one within the, ha- within the household you just deeply know that you need one you're not sure what it's for but you're certain that you need one i'm sure my um, daughters would play it to me uh, I think. Well, it's, it's, um, so it's, it was like attached to the neck you had your fingers clamped to it um and it was for it was for um street performers who who played badly um right. or juggled, juggled badly or whatever it might have been there's an example in amsterdam uh, in a museum in Amsterdam, but there are other examples uh, like that. Um, here we are donkeys called into service with pe- people made to ride on donkeys in public. Um, people who practiced medicine without qualifications were placed backwards on donkeys and paraded. Prostitutes could be marched through a city in a barrel. I don't really understand that. Perjurers had to sit atop a wooden horse. Bigamists might be placed in a cage for an hour or so in the marketplace with a large sign highlighting an offence. Forgers were placed in the stocks with a piece of paper on their head to denote the crime. And it goes on and on and on. There are all sorts of um, specific examples of humiliation uh, associated with specific crimes. So there's a there's an entire history there which I think can be can be looked into. Um, what I immediately came back to though was this idea of humiliation being used as a tool, as a propaganda tool, as a political tool. And the way to look at this most effectively, I think, is looking at the Danish conquest. So. Um, in in the ten hundreds, England's subjected to a, a waves of invasions by Danish armies. Um, they uh, the English have to pay um, huge ransoms. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury is kidnapped um, and is then uh, beaten. And to get the Danes off the coast, there has to be um, so, so sizable reparations, financial reparations. Now. What's interesting about this is there's an Anglo-Saxon response to the events, um, which is, well, I think you could easily say that it's the earliest surviving political speech in the English language. It's written by Wolfstan, the Archbishop of York, uh, known as the Sermon of the Wolf. And it's fascinating because he specifically talks about the humiliations that had been heaped upon the Anglo-Saxons, the English, by the Danish. And he does this to um, to to really question the behaviour of the English as to why, why these Danish invaders had come down. Um, I'll just read you a bit for this. It's fascinating. Um, the, the title's in Latin itself, but the work, the original work's in Old English. 
Um, this is it. Sermon of the Wolf. Therefore, it is clear and well seen in all of us that we have previously more often transgressed than we have amended. And therefore, much is greatly assailing this nation. Nothing has prospered now for a long time, either at home or abroad. But there has been military devastation and hunger, burning and bloodshed in nearly every district time and again. And stealing and slaying plague and pestilence, murrain and disease, malice and hate and the robbery by robbers have injured us very terribly. Here so it might seem too many in the land are sorely injured by the wounds of sin. Here are manslayers and killers of kinsmen and murderers of priests and enemies of monasteries, and here are cruel perjurers and murderers, and here are whores and child killers and many foul fornicating adulterers, and here are witches and valkyries, and here are robbers and plunderers and mighty despoilers and, to speak briefly, numberless kinds of crime and every misdeed. He goes on. It's terrible to know that men often jointly purchase a woman, ravage her like dogs, and then sell her again to their enemies. Fathers sell their sons for profit and sons their mothers. Too many perjure themselves and break oaths. A slave will flee his master to become Viking and gains more honour thereby than his previous master keeps. This is where he gets to the key bit. We disgracefully pay off our enemies and the English are continually defeated. Pirates are made strong and one of them can drive away ten of our own. So afflicted are we with sin. Our lot is misery and public shame for we honour those who injure us and pay who humiliate us. So what he does is he talks so much in this in this vein about how barbarous humiliation follows on from military defeat. He particularly recounts how English nobles are forced to stand by while their wives and daughters were raped. And what's going on here is he's, he realises, you've got to forget about whether it's actually happened or not. So yes, the Vikings may have done this, but that's not actually the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that Wolfstan here realises that it's not enough just to talk about violence and what's happening. He needs to talk about the shame and the humiliation which is being heaped upon the English by the Vikings. And he does that as a motivational tool, as a political tool. And what that makes us see and appreciate is, is just how powerful that was as a motivational factor all that long ago in the 11th century. Excellent. Very good. Very good. That was brilliant, Sam. Um, I just want to pick you up on the on the uh, female aspect of that. So the gender aspect of that and the way in which women were the treatment of women um, was used as a as a weapon uh, in this particular sermon. And I want to go off in a different direction with that because it relates to something that I was going to talk about, which was the way in which as a form of humiliation that punished certain types of behaviour, women would have their heads shaved. And I want to talk a little bit uh, about that. So in the aftermath of the Second World War in France, um, many of the women who were female collaborators had their hair publicly shaved. So you'd see them out in the sort of town squares being ritually uh, shaven. And the aim was basically to um, show that the, the society, the moral community, was basically spurning them, that it was judging them for their collaboration with, uh, with the Nazis. And probably the most famous example of this that we have uh, in post-war France was 
It was captured in a photograph by a famous photographer called Robert Kappa, who photographed a 23-year-old woman, Simone Tussaud, uh, who we see being hounded down the streets of Chartres, holding what is a three-month-old child that she'd had with her lover, who was a, a German soldier. And this is this is published in Life magazine, and it becomes a very iconic image of uh, uh, the liberation of France, which is seen as or an aspect of the liberation of France, which is seen as a, a wild, known as the wild purge. And you see her here. Um, she's 23 year years old, as I said. She was a translator working for the Germans. Um, the fact that she's holding her baby here uh, I think is quite extraordinary. Uh, if you Google, if you Google this, you will find you'll find it. Simone Tussaud and um, and um, Robert Kappa. Uh, Google that, and you will you'll find a, an example of it. It's very famous. Um, it shows her carrying her daughter in, in her arms. She's been accused of denouncing neighbours. What's interesting is her father accompanies her in in front, carrying her bags to march her off home. Uh, and then she's taken to jail afterwards. She's also been branded with an iron on the on the forehead, marked with red with an iron, which is another sign of collaboration. Her mother also suffers the same punishment uh, and is partially sort of covered in the picture. But it's testimony of the way in which this kind of public shaming ritual uh, was used by a society to judge women, and it's not just in it's not just in Nazi Germany, but we also see it happening in Ireland during the War of Independence between 1919 and 1921, uh, where there are all sorts of atrocities from both sides uh, of the dispute, and intimidation is used in interesting way, very interesting gendered ways. So if you think about men are targets for executions and kidnapping and hijackings and murder. Uh, women in, instead are targets for beatings, rape and also having head shaven, which is probably the most common uh, form of punishment. It was thought that if you executed women, that was actually going slightly too far and would lead to sort of a real sort of backlash uh, within the community. But sh Head shaving was a, a a real sort of deliberate violation of of women's sense of self, and I think I think what's what's um what's really interesting about that is that hair is so much part of female beauty. So shaving it off in that very sort of you know aggressive way is something that violates um, femininity. Um, it once I mean the practice of of shaving it or cutting the hair off uh, could be, you know, extremely painful. But also, also, if you think about afterwards, having a shaved head becomes a symbol of betrayal. It's something that marks you out in public. And also it acts as a warning to others. And there are various um, accounts of this in newspapers from the time. There's uh, 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 the Irish Times on the 21st of July, uh, 1920, on page five. Uh, in, includes the headline, Outrage in Cork, Girl's Hair Cut in the Street. Uh, it's also something that's very famously uh, depicted in Ken Loach's film, uh, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Um, but also what's extraordinary is that it, it exists today. 
in the in the twenty first century. And this was one of the most harrowing examples that I found in in Frivert's book, uh, The Politics of Humiliation. It's another of the examples that she starts off with. And again, it comes from the US in 2015. And what she's looking at here is the way in which humiliation works on social media. And the example she gives is of a 13-year-old girl called uh, Izzy Laksamana, who comes from Tacoma in Washington. And she, a 13-year-old girl, has taken a selfie of herself in a sports bra and leggings and that she's sent to a boyfriend. Uh, this then is circulated. Her father finds out and goes absolutely ballistic. But instead of, you know, grounding her or taking away social media or whatever, um, what he does is he cuts off her long hair, having made a film of it, he then sends it to the boy and the video then goes viral, which leads to this thir poor 13-year-old girl being ridiculed and humiliated at school and she then, on the basis of this, can't stand it anymore and commits suicide. So it's the ultimate sort of you know, it's the ultimate sort of tragedy of this kind of gendered shaming ritual of cutting off uh, women's hair or girls' and hair in this. Extraordinary. But you can see the effect of what's happening there. You know, um, your other example at the beginning was someone committing suicide and two examples of people committing suicide. Uh, and you realise just how uh, powerful a weapon it was and it could be. And um, I was reading something recently about the um, Chinese camps in the uh, Uyghur Autonomous region in Xinjiang, um, where there is a move by the Chinese to re-educate uh, the Muslim population of Uyghurs. And it actually made me think a great deal about how they were doing it and what was going on. And one way of looking at this is actually looking at the Second World War. Um, and I was going to carry on uh, just talking about... You were talking about the use of um, hair shaving there for humiliation. I want to talk about song singing for humiliation because that was something I read about in the paper um, with accounts of uh, Uyghurs being made to sing um, songs about China and to learn Chinese songs. Um, music making, particularly in concentration camps, has a very long and fascinating history. So we might know of um, how the Nazis made uh, Jews wear badges. Um, which was very much part of, of trying to humiliate them as well as trying to mark them out for discrimination in one form or another. But there is an interesting history here, and this is music which is required on demand by camp authorities, talking here about enforced singing of songs, which was known to be objectionable somehow to prisoners or, um, or they were songs that were deliberately chosen to demoralise and to humiliate. There's a couple of um, extraordinary accounts of this. This is from Primo Levi, who was uh, at uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau. The beating of the big drums and the cymbals reaches continuously and monotonously, but in this weft the musical phrases weave a pattern only intermittently according to the caprices of the wind. 
the tunes a few, a dozen, and the same ones every day, morning and evening. Marches and popular songs dear to every German. They lie engraven on our minds and will be the last thing in the lager that we shall forget. They are the voice of the lager, the the perceptible expression of its geometrical madness, of the resolution of others to annihilate us first as men in order to kill us more slowly afterwards. Now, the idea, I think, that music was important during the Holocaust is well known, but I don't necessarily think that's surprising. But what it, the, the primary focus, certainly as I've come across it, has been to an idea of music being there to generate hope or dignity within within camps. So people playing music from their homeland, um, people writing their own music as a as a vision of hope and vision for the future. So this idea of enforced singing, I think, is really important and um, and needs to be emphasised. Now, the link between the these re-education camps I was talking about uh, in, in China and what was happening here is that some of the concentration camps, uh, like Sachsenhausen, which is just outside Berlin, I visited it, It's an extraordinary place. I'd urge you all to go. But that was one of these camps. It wasn't an extermination camp. It was a re-education camp. And there are lots of um, accounts of people, again, being made to to sing here. Whether you've got singing, which is a type of... um, uh, Singing accompanying torture, that often happens, but also as targeted humiliation. This is an account of Wolfgang Sepanski, who is a survivor of Sachsenhausen. And he's talking about the, um, the tra- camp commander here. Whenever it struck his fancy, the camp commander would demand a song. Then a step ladder would promptly be found for the conductor. He would climb up, announce the title of the song, and then raise his baton. The most popular songs were Hazelnuss and Frolic Sein. In spite of the cheerful text and jaunty melody, it sounded more like a dirge when sung from the raw throats of tired men. The slow and tortuous line would issue forth, then let us sing and be cheerful. The eerie sound would carry through the air all the way to Oranienburg, and if it was not found satisfactory, then the group would be interrupted and the song would be started again from the beginning. That is one of just several accounts of enforcing from um, the Nazi concentration camps and um, there you go and there are also accounts of uh, Uyghurs being made to forcibly sing pro-Chinese songs in re-education camps today in China. Yeah I mean it raises one of the big sort of big questions about people being a country's nations being shamed by their past. It's a big debate at the moment with Black Lives Matter and and the kind of uh, role that that um, you know, very public figures have had in in slavery, or you know the the sort of dilemma um, that surrounds empire. And if you think about the, you know, British Empire, you know there are elements of con- you know concentration camps and and you know um, massacres, famines, you know that that show Britain in a very shameful you know very shameful way. If you think about the during the the war the concentration camps there you think about the Amritsa massacre you think about the partitioning of India you think about the Mau Mau uprising just to name a few or the famines in India um you know in 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 45 1945 when you know people were starving and millions of tons of wheat were exported to Britain 
uh, at that time. You know, these are these are things that as a as a nation you need to you know you need to own and you need to you know you need to to recognize so i think that's a sort of looking at it at a sort of global level it's thinking about the the shameful acts in our in our own past yeah well there we go um Dickens is another one, James, for humiliation. Huh. <laughs> you like yes. a, you like you like a bit of Dickens. I like a bit of Dickens. I, I'm thinking yeah. hard. I'm thinking hard times. Uh, grad, well, grad grind and the um, the the ritual of um, you know humiliation in schools. Yeah, um, um, and Dickens is such a careful and astute observer of social class, and I think social humiliation is something that um, you know it's, it's an entire topic in its own right. And if you look at Dickens's books, you realise how I think mobile society was as much as anything else. Great Expectations, obviously, is an example of Pip who becomes um, becomes a gentleman. He moves to the city, and becomes a gentleman, and there's a wonderful bit where um, he, he's he's hanging out with his friend Herbert Pocket, mm. um, and um, Herbert nicknames Pip Handle. You need to know that for this quote to make sense, and what you realise is is just to the extent of embarrassment um, and even kind of cruelty and degradation that there was involved with social class here and how performance was really important to it. One of the things you read to know about Great Expectations is that the year before Great Expectations is published, um, there's a book um, and it's called Self-Help. It was written by someone called Samuel Smiles. And it is a book which, it, it's a kind of a self-help book about, about self-education um, and and uh, social mobility, the routes towards social mobility. There's this wonderful bit. Um, so Pip's gone gone to to um, Pocket's house and they're having a dinner, and the dinner's absolutely fantastic. And Pip sits down and gets gets <laughs> stuck in, and then at the end of it, um, uh, Herbert says this. He says. When we'd made some progress in the dinner, I reminded Herbert of his promise to tell me about Miss Havisham. Um, Herbert is Miss Havisham's cousin. True, he replied. I'll redeem it at once. Let me introduce this topic, Handel, by mentioning first that in London it is not the custom to put the knife in the mouth for fear of accidents, and that while the fork is reserved for that use, it is not put further in than is necessary. It's scarcely worth mentioning, only it's as well to do as other people do. Um, I love that bit. So you've got this vision of Pip um, eating off a knife, putting his fork in his mouth too far and um and and Herbert just sitting there going what what are you doing you cannot do that um and it makes you realize how humiliating that would have been for him and how important performance is in social class um in in the uh, Victorian period yeah and also to go back to what you were saying at the beginning the way in which humiliation differs on what social class you are what gender you are and I think that's one of the things that sort of in a roundabout way come out of this so that there are particular rules for, for behaviour in particular, particular social groups that if you if you if you don't obey them, um, you can be ridiculed for them. But I just wanted to end with a, a sort of little musing on um, one of the most humiliating uh, experiences that I had, uh, which connects us to this idea of of education as a form of humiliation or schools being able to use humiliation to discipline and and make children behave in a particular way and throughout history there have always been you know various practices whether it be 
wearing a dunce's cap and being made to stand in the corner, whether it be sort of public beating, caning, you know, the kinds of being... I remember a, a, a young boy uh, in my class when I was about... Um, when I was about 10, uh, having to sit in a literally in a cage at the front of the class because he misbehaved. Uh, and the teacher referred to it as a cage. Um, but I also remember aged eight, uh, having being beaten by my teacher uh, and having a ruler whacked across the back of my legs. Because what I had done, get this, um, I had, uh, when the teacher had gone into her book cupboard, I had taken her whistle uh, from off her desk and blown it. I was a very high-spirited uh, eight-year-old, um, but, I, you know, I, I certainly didn't think I deserved it. But it was utterly humiliating. And it was done not in private. It was done in front of the entire class. And I also think it was done with malice and anger. It wasn't about teaching a lesson. I think there was a... I will not... Um, I will not... Uh, Name and shame this person. Do uh, humiliate them now. No, 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 no. But, but she was. A, she what, 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 was that? She was in fact. She was in fact a, a, a friend of my mother's and sat oh. on the NSPCC. And yeah. <laughs> my mother was not pleased. I must. I must admit. Anyway, that probably brings us to the end of our of our um, of our topic. What should we do next, Sam? Uh, sharks. Without a shadow of a doubt, you've had you've had uh, two goes recently. We did fear and humiliation, both of you yours, and uh, I want to do sharks. Excellent, we're, we're going excellent, to do sharks. excellent. We should then do laughter. <laughs> okay, we'll do laughter. Yeah, I think laughter, Absolutely. laughing sharks, sharks. It is. <laughs> Brilliant. It's not even a thing. Uh, guys, thank you so much for listening to us. Do please follow us on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm on at James Daybell. And the pod is on at Unexpected Pod. Um, do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. It shows everything that we've done, all our books, and our temporarily postponed live shows. Um, and if you would like to help us out, do please subscribe at patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. We'd really, really appreciate your support and your help. Thank you so much for listening. As always, do please spread the word. Leave a review on iTunes. And, and that's it, really. Get in touch. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care.